Um, as I am working through each book of the Bible, uh, setting up the context for us to spend time in the Word ourselves, there's, there's a lot of application in all of these messages, um, but the, my, my real goal for the whole series is that we have the context for us to read the Bible on our own and provide some context for that. Today, we're going to be looking um, at the book of Esther. And um, I had a note card that I was just writing things down as I was working my way through the book of Esther. And I want to read you some of the things that I, that I wrote down um, reflecting on the book of Esther. The often hidden yet always present sovereign hand of God is always in control of our story. That's a huge message that, that just emerges so clearly out of the book of Esther. Also wrote this down. For those of us who feel marginalized, vulnerable, unfaithful, forgotten, hopeless, or, or even with no need to celebrate today, the book of Esther was written for you. In the book of Esther, the Jewish scriptures preserve for us the origin of the Feast of Purim, which celebrates God's faithfulness, and the Jews celebrate that by retelling, even reenacting this story year after year uh, during the feast time. Uh, and if you ever get an opportunity to be a part of one of those, it's, it's fantastic in a Jewish community. Sometimes they do it in their families when they do it in a synagogue. Um, it often feels like a pageant. People are dressed up in costumes. There's a lot of um, um, audience reaction. Anytime the bad guys are mentioned, there's a reaction. When the good guys are mentioned, there's a reaction. Um, and, and there's actually a presentation of this that has been preserved and depicted for us in The Chosen. Um, in season three, episode seven of The Chosen, the whole episode starts off with a family celebrating the Feast of Purim. Um, so I want you to watch it here. And the king arose in a wrath from his wine drinking, who went into the palace garden. But Haman, <gasps> he stayed behind to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, just as Haman <gasps> was falling onto the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence? In my own house? This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages hold the 14th day of the month of Adar day for gladness and feasting as a holiday. Lechaez! Boy, it's a, it's a great story. It provides um, one of the feasts that to this day is continually celebrated in Jewish communities. Um, but what I'm going to do with the book of Esther today might mess you up, okay? Um, I'm going to present the book of Esther and have you read it closely with me. Um, and I think what you're going to see is that this is no Disney story. 
This is not a beauty pageant that every little girl would like to be a part of and win. Um, this is no story of superheroes of the faith who are doing everything right. But it is a story of God's faithfulness. So matter, no matter whether you agree with me or not about the perspective on some of the characters in the story, um, the point of the story remains God is faithful to his people, regardless of where they're at and what they're doing. So for you, I, I want you to encourage you, no, no matter what has happened in your life, no matter where you may be right now, this is a good message for you because God is faithful to his people. Bob Chisholm says this, summarizing the story. The book of Esther tells the story of a Jewish exile named Mordecai and his beautiful cousin Esther. Through a fascinating set of circumstances, they were able to save the Jewish exiles from the murderous plot of Haman. <laughs> Haman. An event that gave rise to the Jewish feast of Purim. The most curious feature of the book is the absence of God's name. Despite this glaring omission, many contend that the book illustrates God's providential control of events. And I believe that's true. I believe the absence of God's name is actually the point of the book, because without God's name in any prayers and any praises, no one appealing to him, no one giving him credit for any of the things that are going on, it, it makes you realize God is at work. You're so closely looking for God, whose name is omitted, that you see God in this book. Um, I've got a chart and some other archaeological and background resources out at the Connection Center and online if you'd like them. Uh, the book really it revolves, and I'm going to show you some more things about the structure later, but it revolves around a number of feasts. Um, at the beginning of the book, um, Ahasuerus, which um, is the name that's in the Hebrew text, his name is Ahasuerus, and that may be in your text, but some translations, like the NIV and the ESV, they, they, they translate it to the guy who we know who he is historically, Xerxes. But Ahasuerus and Xerxes is the same person. And at the beginning of the book, he throws some feasts, and it sets up the story that puts the Jews in a really difficult space. Then the middle of the book has some feasts that are thrown by Esther. Once Esther gets um, in place where she can have influence, um, there are some feasts that she throws that really turn the book around. The book ends with the Feast of Purim. Um, and on my chart down in the corner there, you can see there's a little, it's, it's a dice, it's, it's a lot. Um, and, and the reason it's called the Feast of Purim is because the, the dice that, that Haman threw, <sighs> Haman, um, the dice that Haman threw when he was deciding, when are we going to destroy the Jews, that is a pure. And he threw some Purim. And so it's, it's almost mocking him. You threw the Purim to see when you were going to destroy us, but we survived and actually destroyed you. So it's the Feast of Purim that turns everything around. Um, the first part of the book takes about 10 years to, to take place. Then once we get into um, the, the scene with Esther that's in the center part of the book, it's about a year, and there's even the core part of this is just two or three days. Um, and then the book ends at the very last couple of chapters with the Jews celebrating the Feast of Purim and Haman, um, him trading places with Mordecai because um, Haman is destroyed and Mordecai is exalted. Now, I want to set this up. Uh, for you with a little bit of support, because you, you may have a little trouble going with me that, that Esther and Mordecai may not be the heroes um, uh, that we've always thought they were. So bear with me here, and then I'm going to get to the details of the story. Danny Hay says this, the story of Esther is an entertaining one, yet while the story is rather easy to read, it's not easy to interpret, 
and there is no consensus regarding the point of the story. Likewise, there's disagreement on how to interpret the character of Esther. Some people say it's just the origin of the Feast of Purim. Stop there. Um, some people say that it's showing how heroes are, are working in the story. Some people say it's showing how God is working in spite of the unfaithfulness of people. He goes on to say, in fact, there doesn't seem to be much of a spiritual awareness at all in any of the characters of the book. One can perhaps read some faith into Mordecai's warning words in Esther chapter 4, especially in his ending comments, who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. But this is a pretty fuzzy indication of faith, especially in the context of Ezra and Nehemiah, who were around during this time, who clearly and repeatedly looked to God for help and who also repeatedly acknowledged God for all their successes. The characters in Esther do neither. Um, in the context where Ezra and Nehemiah, um, not perfect, but they are looking to God for guidance. They pray for guidance. When God delivers them and God gives them success building the temple, building the walls, they give God credit. None of that happens in this book. Um, Michelle Knight says this, Neither Mordecai nor Esther is necessarily a paragon of practicing Yahwehism. <laughs> Esther's no Ruth and Mordecai is no Boaz. Um, I do like some people in the Bible, by the way. Right? I do think there are some heroes and models that you can look to. Uh, I'm going to talk about Daniel in a minute. I think Daniel is amazing in a foreign context, very much like Esther's. Um, I, I do think that, that Boaz and Ruth are great models of people who, who loved God and love others. When Shane has been teaching about um, Jesus' model for discipleship and what it means to follow him, it all boils down to exactly what Jesus said. Do you love God and do you love others? Both, um, both Boaz and Ruth, they love God. They have hasted loyalty to God, and they, they express that in their loyalty to others. I think there's some great people um, in this book, but Esther's no Ruth, and Mordecai is, is no Boaz in this story. Danny Hayes goes on to say, Likewise, the names of the heroes and the heroine, question those titles, but they are disturbing. Mordecai's name probably means man of Marduk. Marduk was the primary god of the Babylonians, so this is an alarming name for an Israelite hero. Similarly, the name of Esther is probably derived from Ishtar, the Mesopotamian goddess of love. The meaning of the names, of course, is not conclusive for determining the meaning of the story, but names often do play a role, and these particular names are especially dis disconcerting. Again, I go back to Daniel. Daniel had his name changed, but we still know him by Daniel, and he didn't change his name his identity was in his name, Daniel, God is my judge. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had Hebrew names. It was others who changed their name. It seems like Mordecai and Esther seemed to have been confident and kind of consistent with how maybe the world around them had defined them. Thus, while it's tempting to raise up Mordecai and the beautiful young Esther as heroes and models of faith like Ezra and Nehemiah, it's doubtful that the author of Ezra intended the story to be understood that way. Um, Michelle Knight said it this way, Esther, she ain't the hero. Um, neither is Mordecai. Um, and I would call your attention, whether you're going to go with me or not on my interpretation of the passage, God is the hero of this story. Okay, So you can, you can end up identifying in some way or another with the characters, but God is the hero of the story. The characters of Mordecai and Esther are certainly bold and brave, but they do not seem to be faith-driven, and they probably symbolize those Jews who had remained in exile. God works behind the scenes through Mordecai and Esther, not because of their great faith, which is absent, but because of his great grace, 
and in spite of their lack of faith. By the way, I think this is encouraging and includes all of us. God is faithful in spite of our lack of faith. God is faithful even when the world around us is defining us and we find ourselves in situations that are vulnerable and difficult, um, trapped sometimes in areas where it's really difficult. Uh, Let me take you through the story. We're going to read it closely. I'll narrate a little part, but we're going to read a good bit of Esther here. The book starts this way. For a full 180 days, Xerxes, Ahasuerus, displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. So 187 days, they're partying and banqueting. Um, 187 days of spring break. That's what's going on here. In the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the last to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa, the garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material uh, to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the stewards to serve each man what he wished. 187-day party, open bar, everybody gets to drink whatever they want, as much as they want, and they are partying to the hilt. This is, this is the context of where this starts, and I want you to remember, this is the king. Every time you see the, the king, he seems to be... Um, a drunken, delirious ruler. That's what's going on here. With abundant provisions. Let me just show you. I'm going to show you a little bit later. But to see how abundant and how lavish all of this stuff is, this is the tombs of the Persian kings. Um, This is the tombs of Darius, Artaxerxes, and Xerxes. I've got an article out there on the Connection Center. You can see if you like that kind of historical background. Um, For people who, who made these their tombs, and can you see the people in the in the foreground as a perspective. If this was their tombs, their, their capitals and their palaces must have been pretty amazing. There's a lavish party that's going on, and this, this lavish party um, is, is taking place um, during a difficult time in Xerxes' life. Uh, Xerxes, uh, king of Persia, is, is going to be eventually overrun by the Greeks, and he goes to battle the Greeks and loses a battle, Okay. So this is all happening in the first couple of years of his reign. On the seventh day of this 187-day feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he's drunk, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahrumim, Zeth, Beth, uh, Bestha, uh, Harboni, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring before him the queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. In a drunken rage, with all of a bunch of drunken people around, he sends for the queen to come and be paraded in front of everybody. Um, I can't prove it from the text, but the Jewish rabbis say that when she was summoned to come wearing her royal crown, that that's all he wanted her wearing, only the crown, nothing else, to come and and parade in front of these drunken men. No wonder she refused. (laughs) But when she refused, a drunken king in a rage 
um, he basically decides, um, I'm going to depose her. I'm going to get rid of her as my queen. He does. He goes on um, a campaign. Historically, there's a uh, historian named Herodotus um, who tells some stories of Xerxes' escapades while he's away fighting the Greeks and, and the harem that he had with him. Um, he even tells the story that, that Vashti was still part of the harem. She just wasn't the queen anymore. And there's a lot of, uh, boy, a lot of vindictiveness that goes on in, in that harem. It's not a safe place to be. Uh, and the king comes back after one of these failed expeditions uh, with the Greeks, and, um, and he says, I need a new queen. So here's, here's the plan. The king ordered, and he made an edict and proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. I mean, at first you might go, oh, wow, the best place in the harem. Wait a minute, think about this. This is a harem. There's a group of women who were there for the king. This is not Snow White. This is human trafficking. Okay? And her... her Cousin Mordecai is the one who said, hey, go ahead and, and jump in there. <laughs> and, and, and she becomes a part of the harem. Um, the harem where the king is going to select his next queen. When the turn came for he- Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked uh, for no other thing than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Um, I don't know what, how you frame this, but I, I want you to get a, a feel for it. This is a harem of women who've been gathered beautiful women, and each one is taking a turn with the drunken king to see who he's going to choose to be the queen. This is not a Disney story. I'm not sure she was all that delighted when she was chosen to go into the presence of the king to have her turn. But one thing I do notice, not only do I contrast Mordecai and Esther with Boaz and Ruth, but I also think about Esther in contrast to Daniel. When Daniel was in a very similar circumstance, Daniel is taken into the palace of the king, and he has offered all of the provisions of the king. Daniel says, no, it would make me unclean. Now, God still raises him to a place of prominence and influence, but, but Daniel responds in a very different way than Esther in all of this. Now, let me, let me admit Esther's in a very vulnerable, difficult, um, really powerless position. But God's going to use her. Again, I don't know what position you find yourself in. Neglected. Uh, maybe you have a history of morally ambiguous behavior. Or just downright obedience, capitulation to the world. Maybe you feel trapped in where you're at right now. God can still use you. She's going to win. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. By the way, again, think of who is attracted to her. 
a very powerful, opulent, drunken king who is using women and disposing his queen um, if, when he gets angry. I'm not sure this is a winning of a contest. Um, she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So, she sat, so he sat a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, another banquet for the, with his king. For all the nobles and the officials, he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Um, so now she's the queen. Um, God's not praised. He's not sought for any guidance, but she is the queen. God is moving her into a position where she can have an influence. But then something else happens. She's the queen. Mordecai knows she's there, and Mordecai's hanging out at the gate, kind of listening to make sure everything is okay, it seems like. And, and during that time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officials who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Xerxes is assassinated in his bed later. But Mordecai found out about this plot, and he told Queen Esther, who then reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And it just so happened, when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. There's a preview of something else coming. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the, in the presence of the king. Esther tells him, Mordecai saved your life. They write it down in a book. Good. Great story. Um, the plot's going to thicken here. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, <laughs> son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Agagite, he's, a, he's an Amorite, okay? The, the longtime enemies of Israel. Back in Canaan, these guys hate the Israelites. And that's who Haman is. He, but he elevated him and gave him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. The king had com commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. I, I don't know why he's elevated. Um, this seems like one evil guy elevating another evil guy beside him. It's like, I don't know, Lenin and, and Stalin. It, it's, it's, it's bad people who are, who are taking care of each other. And for some reason, we don't know why, Mordecai says, I'm not bowing down to that guy. Haman gets furious. And Haman comes up with a plan. He says to his friends and his wife, what should I do? Um, and they say, you should kill him and, and impale him on a pole. Lift him high so that everybody knows you can't, you can't mess with Haman. And he comes up with a plan they cast the lot and they say, okay, it's going to be on the 14th of the month of Adar. Not only are we going to take care of Haman, but we're going to kill all of his people, the Jews. And so Haman goes in to talk to Xerxes, who doesn't know at this point that Esther is Jewish. Haman goes in and he says, hey, this guy disrespected me and I'd love for you. They're, they're a trouble in the kingdom anyways. Um, let's get rid of them. And the king agrees. Dispatches were sent by the couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to, pay attention, destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. Young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. It was about a year later. We've got a date. We're going to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, take all their possessions. We're going to be getting rid of them. By the way, this has been Satan's plan throughout the Old Testament. If I can get rid of the Jews, I get rid of the path to the Messiah. 
So back in Egypt, um, even in Canaan, in Babylon, here in Persia, Satan is trying to work with the powers of the world to eliminate the Jews. Because he knows if I can eliminate the Jews, I can eliminate the path to God's victory over sin and Satan himself. So the decree is sent out. I love this next verse. Not highlighted in many Bibles, I don't think. But the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Certainly king, the king and Haman sat down to drink, because that's what these guys do. But everybody else is wondering, what is going on? Why are we wiping out one of the, the, the people that, that live here? And so Mordecai, knowing that the Jews are going to be destroyed now because the proclamation's gone out, he comes to Esther and he says, hey, I need your help. Don't think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. That doesn't sound very nice, by the way, to me. This doesn't sound like, oh, I care about you so much. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. By the way, you may be in a position, you may feel trapped like, like um, Esther. You may be in a position where you just go, I don't know how I ended up here. I didn't make all these decisions. Oh my gosh, this is where I am. But I do think this is still true. For such a time as this, God can use you still. God's never finished choosing who he's going to use. Well, <laughs> there's a turning point. Esther, in response to Mordecai, says, I'm going to throw a feast, see if I can get, a, get the king to turn this thing around. So she throws a feast, and she's, the, the king, Xerxes, says, hey, ask me anything, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. You can have it. And she says, no, nah, I'll come back. Let me throw you another feast. Well, between the feasts, the king couldn't sleep. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of uh, the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Just so happened, he can't sleep one night. They bring in the book. By the way, yes, this is the book he would read. Let me, let me read the book of all of the annals of all the things I've ever done. But in the book, there's recorded, some guys tried to assassinate you, and this guy, Mordecai, prevented it from happening. <laughs> and Xerxes says, well, what are we going to do to honor this guy? This is the turning point of the book. Everything is going bad through this book. But right here in the middle, there's this feast that is kind of the opposite of the opulent feast that um, is setting up the problem. Esther throws a feast that's now going to set up the solution. She has a feast. The king can't sleep. He reads that Mordecai saved his life and decides, I'm going to honor him. Now, when the king decides I'm going to honor him, it's, it's the scene that they're, they're reading in the chosen clip that I showed you earlier. When the king decides he's going to honor him, he gets Haman, his next guy, and he says, hey, how should we honor this person who's done something great for me? Obviously, Haman is thinking, oh, it's me. They're going to honor me. So he comes up with this idea. He says, here's what we're going to do. Um, Haman says, if you're going to honor somebody, put him on a horse, you know, lead him through the city, make everybody bow to him and cheer for him. And the king says, great, do that for Mordecai. Haman's like, my arch enemy? 
He goes home and he tells his family and his friends, and they say, oh my gosh, this is, this is bad news. Um, the tide has turned, and, and, and Mordecai is going to be exalted over you. Um, and, and he is. Um, so then Esther throws another feast, and it's at this feast that she's going to elaborate, and she's going to say to the king, I need your help. And, and here's what she says. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And she reveals to him, I'm Jewish, and your proclamation to destroy, kill, and annihilate, it's about my people. Now, this king is not good-hearted. He's just, he's erratic. (laughs) But at this point, Esther's in his favor. And so he says this, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. That's exactly what I'm thinking when I read vile Haman. Yeah, that's him. Um, For you guys over here, this is your vile Haman, okay? (laughs) Dastardly deeds. (laughs) And then Haman... Um, when the king runs out to the gardens to kind of compose himself, because he's enraged, uh, the king is enraged against Haman. Haman now goes to beg for his life with Esther. Um, When Xerxes comes back in, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And immediately the the execution pole that was made for Mordecai by Haman, King Xerxes says, put Haman up there. And everything has turned around. And they get to protect themselves. The king's edict was granted to the Jews in, the, in every city and the right to assemble and protect themselves. Because the king couldn't say, no, we're not going to destroy the Jews. He couldn't um, reverse his policy. But what he could say is that you can protect yourselves and you can destroy and kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality who, in the province who, who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. What they were going to do to you, destroy, kill, and annihilate, you can now do to them. Destroy, kill, and annihilate. They were going to take your property. You can now take their property. Everything is reversed in the plan. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, The edict commanded by the kings was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The tables are turned, by the way, and they go even further. Uh, Esther eventually comes back and says, can we kill a few more? And obviously king says, yeah, kill kill as many as you want. What's going on in this story? Um, Why do we have this thing? Well, let me answer some things that we can answer by not having answers. The text of Esther doesn't give us any clues as to who wrote the story down. Whoever it was, they were certainly aware of the precise historical details of the Persian palace and the intricacies of the relationships there. It may have been somebody in the palace. It could could have been Nehemiah. It could have been um, Mordecai. It could have been interviews that somebody did with them. We don't know who, who wrote this down. Um, by the way, in the Old Testament, who wrote it? The answers are, are always kind of Moses, Samuel, Ezra, and then we don't know. Uh, so on this one, if it's not Ezra, we don't know. 
Um, Moses, Samuel, Ezra, they write most of the Old Testament. But we don't really know who's writing this. When did this happen? The events occurred historically. Um, near the beginning of the reign of the Persian king Xerxes, the Hebrew text calls him by another name, Ahasuerus, the story begins with Xerxes deposing Vashti in 483 and ends some 10 or 11 years later in 473 um, when the Jews are able to protect themselves and they start this feast. Bruce Wilkins says, says the story of Esther's life fits between chapter 6 and 7 of Ezra. So go back to Ezra. Between chapter 6 and 7, that's where Esther goes. Between the first return under Zerubbabel and the second return led by Ezra, it provides the only biblical portrait of the mass majority of Jews who chose to remain in Persia rather than return to Palestine after the exile. God's hand of providence and protection on behalf of his people is evident throughout the book, though his name does not appear once. By the way, a lot of people, most of the people did not come back to Persia because they were doing just fine. Why go back to the promised land and rebuild a whole city and a whole society? Why go back? We're doing just fine in Persia. Most of them did not go back. Where all of this fits together, it's like this. There's um, Ezra um, 1 through 6, then there's a gap of 32 years, then the story of Esther, then a gap of 15 years, then Ezra goes back, second half of the book of Ezra, and there's a gap of 14 years, and then Nehemiah goes back. We know it all fits together, okay? That's all I'm trying to tell you. Historically, we've got these three returns. Um, then we've got Esther who fits in between all of that. That's where the story is. Where were they? The characters in the story were living in the city of Susa, one of the six citadels of the Persian Empire. Um, the people who are described, Mordecai, uh, they're in Susa. Here, here's a Google Earth picture of, of the archaeological site at Susa. Um, it's pretty amazing, but you can't quite get the perspective here. Um, here it is from on the ground. This is Susa. Um, this is a major, major city that has um, opulence all over it. Um, so the story is historically accurate. But where were the readers? The, the people in the story are back in Susa. The original audience may have been living back in the land of Israel, still under the rule of the Persians, or they may have still been living in the Persian Empire. We don't know who's reading this first, but it is a message to God's people in the land and outside the land that God is going to be faithful. So content, how is this all arranged? By the way, the guy who writes this is historically accurate. He knows what he's doing, but he's a literary genius. The whole book, 10 chapters, is a giant chiasm, and it's clear everybody notices it. Please watch the Bible Project video on Esther. It'll show you this in a really amazing way, a really clear way. The book is arranged as a giant chiasm with kind of complete reversals. Everything is going bad until you get to the middle um, where um, the king... Um, has the dream, which is the very center of the book where the king has the dream. But there, um, Haman and Mordecai change places. Um, Haman is on the way up and Mordecai is on the way down. In the second half of the book, Haman's on the way down and Mordecai's on the way up and God's people are saved. It is a beautiful, beautiful arrangement. What is it trying to say? The author recorded God's preservation of his unbelieving people and the celebration of that event in the Feast of Purim in order to show the post-exilic covenant community that God is loyal to his people, even those outside the land, even those who are morally ambiguous, <laughs> who are not fully obedient, not because of their character, but because of his covenant faithfulness, even when he is working behind the scenes, which would encourage them to finish the projects that God had given them to do in spite of their opposition. By the way, this is a great message for every one of us in this room. God is faithful no matter where you're at to his people. If you've put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross, validated by the resurrection, and you're part of the people of God, he's going to be faithful to deliver you. 
Now, if you cooperate with him, it's going to go a lot better. If you don't cooperate with him, you may have to fight for your life, but he's going to protect you. He's going to, um, he is going to be on your side. By the way, this, is, this message of grace is one of our core values. We are responding to the grace of God. We're not trying to live in a way to get God to deliver us. God has delivered us. He will be faithful to us. Even when we're not faithful to him, he's faithful to deliver us. And that should encourage us to say, yes, we're going to be involved and faithful to do what God has called us to do. Michelle Knight summarizes it this way. God is faithful and able no matter how powerless, like Esther, nominally religious, like Mordecai, or persecuted, Jews in general in Persia, no matter how um, powerless, nominally religious, or persecuted his instruments are, God is faithful to his covenant and able to become over, overcome any obstacles. So what do we do with this? So what? <laughs> um, let me tell you where all this fits together. This is a continuation of the story of God's faithfulness that we've seen week after week, but this one is during his people's failure. Um, it's a narrative that acknowledges the reality of opposition to God's work and plan for our lives. And it's an example of the often hidden work of God in our lives to further his plan. Where does this fit? God's faithful, even when we're outside the land. When we're outside the land, there's opposition, there's difficulty. And God's at work. We're going to sing about it in just a little bit. God is at work, even when you can't see it. Um, one author, I just want you to see the one word, the indestructibility of the Jews, okay? The indestructibility of the Jews. The Jews cannot be destroyed because the Jews are a part of God's plan. God preserved the Jewish nation so that a king could be born who was Jewish, who would lay down his life for us, and that king happens to be the son of God. So God preserves the Jewish nation. Lane Phillips says this, Esther is tremendously important for readers in every imaginable context to those who feel themselves removed from the narratives of God's miraculous interventions that are so different from our own experiences. Esther's story describes the under the sun, com uh, the under the sun experience complete with ambiguities and the messiness created by sin. Esther also attests to the reversals that are part of life's experience, perhaps in its own way, preparing for the great reversal from death to life eternal through the unlikely means of the crucified Messiah. Um, if you're not part of the crew that's just going, God's doing miracles every day in my life, and you're looking around, you're going, I'm not sure where God's working in my life. Esther's the book for you. So what should we believe? Boy, there's a lot in this book. I, this, I, so much in this book. God is faithful in spite of our unfaithfulness. It doesn't depend on you. Ultimately, God will deliver his people from all threats and harm. Maybe not in this life, but God will deliver us. You can count on that. That's why our hope is heaven, not here. The opposition of the world is terrifying and requires courage and wisdom. I think that is what we learned from Esther. Esther is in a horrible situation. She is vulnerable and trapped. It's terrifying for where she's at. It's your turn with the king. Oh my gosh, how horrible must that day have been. That is not a joyful day. But it required courage and wisdom on her part to figure out how do I navigate all of this. The victory of God's people is guaranteed and God is working even when we don't see it. 
Um, David Howard says this, the author is being intentionally vague about God's presence in advance. Time and again, the author seems to come close to mentioning God, only to swerve away abruptly. This is true in almost every case in God's providence in the book. By doing this, the author seems to be affirming, on the one hand, that God indeed is involved with his people, providence, and on the other hand, that perceiving this involvement is sometimes difficult hiddenness. There's the message of Ruth, providence and hiddenness. We need that message. God is provident. God is guiding. He is sovereign. We don't always get to see it. So how should we behave? (laughs) Well, live distinctive lives as a Christian witness in a hostile world. Um, Live differently than the regular world. Um, Don't be assimilated to the culture. Don't let the culture define your identity. Courageously trust God no matter where you find yourself. You can trust him. He's reliable. Trust him no matter where you're at. And celebrate when God delivers you. Some of that deliverance may be deliverance from your own self, but celebrate when God delivers you. And so some next steps for today. Very clearly coming out of this message, I think. Honestly evaluate your life to see if you have capitulated to the culture. Have you gotten yourself where you're staying in Persia? You're defined by Persian identity? And all of a sudden you realize... (laughs) I'm in a horrible situation, and I haven't thought about God and prayed to him or honored him for a long time. Have you capitulated to the culture and just settled in in Persia? (laughs) Examine your life to see if that's true. Look closely to see where you need deliverance. Sometimes God's delivering us from things we're not even aware of. Look closely to where you need deliverance. And finally, trust God to deliver you in keeping with his advancing his purposes. He doesn't deliver you so that you can be happy and and wonderful in this life. He delivers you so that the Jews can remain alive, so that Jesus can be born. He delivers us to advance his purposes. We're going to sing a song uh, that is the perfect song for this message. So I'm going to ask you to stand up and I'm going to pray. Father, um, thank you for such an honest book. Help us to read it honestly. And Father, no matter what perspective we take on this book, help us to see you as the central figure who is orchestrating all of the events, faithful to the end, and advancing your purposes. And because we know you're that way, help us trust you. Help us believe what we're about ready to sing. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.